author and pastor by the name of Tim Keller up in New York City has a relative who refuses to wear his seatbelt when he gets in the car. And so every time they would get together, the family would always kind of poke fun out of him, conjole him, try to encourage him in order to put on his seatbelt. But every time he'd get in the car, when they'd get together for family gatherings, he would refuse to do so. And so imagine the surprise that years later, when the family has kind of all but given up on trying to get this relative to put on a seatbelt, that at one of their family gatherings, he gets in the car and he puts on his seatbelt when they're in the car and they're absolutely surprised. They're like, what happened? And he said, well, I have this friend and this friend of mine wasn't wearing his seatbelt and he got into an accident and he actually went through the windshield. And as a result, the windshield shattered and he, I went to visit him in the hospital. He had over 200 stitches in his face alone. So I wear my seatbelt now. You just kind of go, well, that makes sense. Now, what's interesting is that he didn't really have any more information than what he had before. Of course, he knew in advance that it's more dangerous to not wear your seatbelt. Of course, he knew that if you're in an accident and you're not wearing your seatbelt, that you're more likely to hit the windshield. He knew all of that information in his head. What happened in visiting his friend who had been in that accident is that an abstract idea became a personal reality that was some sort of vague notion turned into a personal truth. Jonathan Edwards says, truth doesn't really matter very much to us unless you are attached to that truth. The way that we might describe that today is that the reality of the dangerous way in which he was living in the inside of a car went from his head down the 18 inches into his heart. And because of that, his life and his behavior was changed. The way that the Bible describes someone who lives in a persistent denial and stubbornness is that the Bible refers to that person as being hard-hearted. And the Bible actually describes, in the book of Ephesians, actually describes what a hard-hearted person is like. I want to share this passage with you. It's probably not a passage that you've spent a lot of devotional time in because it's a real downer. Let's look at it together. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding, separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity. They are full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life you learned." Let's make a list out of all the conditions um, from this passage of hard-hearted living. Pointless thinking, darkened understanding, separated from God, ignorant of truth, insensitive to others, indulgent and greedy. Raise your hand if that's what you want your legacy to be and for that to be on your tombstone. Not many takers. In fact, if anything, we would like the opposite of that. We would like for our lives to be this that we want to be generous and disciplined and compassionate and wise and united with God and others and aware and sensible people. That's the way of life that we have learned. That's the way that we want to live our lives. We don't want to be hard-hearted. We want to become more 
soft-hearted. That's how we were designed to live. Well, the person in the Bible who is more associated with hard-heartedness than anybody else is the person of Pharaoh from the book, book of Exodus. So back in the Old Testament, Pharaoh is the one who is referred to the most as being hard-hearted. And so what I'd love for you to do is to turn with me in your Bibles to uh, Exodus chapter 1. We're actually going to begin a series this week called Soft Heart for a Hard World. And we're launching into the book of Exodus. We're going to be walking through many of the famous passages in the Exodus story. We're not going to do the whole Exodus story because that would take us a long time. But we're going to cover it between now and through Memorial Day, some of the highlights. And the book of Exodus doesn't start in a place that you might think. It doesn't start… Who do you think is the hero of the book of Exodus? Moses, right? Well, actually, the book of Exodus doesn't start with Moses. It starts with Pharaoh and two unlikely women. And let's see the hard-heartedness of Pharaoh at work. Then a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more that they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. And so the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor and brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. And in all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. So a new king arises to power who doesn't know, who doesn't have any regard for Joseph. If you recall the end of the book of Genesis, what happens at the end of the book of Genesis is that Joseph is put into slavery, finds his way into the court of Pharaoh, ends up becoming the second most powerful figure in Pharaoh's court. And because he's there, because his family goes through a famine, they find their way because of Joseph's kindness and redemptive love that God's people are saved. Although you intended it for harm, God intended it for good, and God's people are saved, and they begin to take root in Egypt and begin to flourish there. Now, what happens is a new political regime takes place, and it's like out with the old and in with the new, and with the new king that's in power there, who doesn't have a relationship with Joseph, isn't grateful for what Joseph brought to saving the Egyptians through the famine, all of a sudden, this new king starts to view the people of Israel as a threat. I know it's hard to imagine, but there was a time in history when political leaders in the world sometimes had fears and based their policies out of those fears. But that's what was happening back in that moment in time. And so they actually enslave God's people in Egypt. Now, the clearest indication to how you can tell whether or not you have a hardening heart is to see how you treat other people. And the phrases that repeat over and over again in these opening verses is that Pharaoh treats God's people ruthlessly and harshly. And that is how we know that we see the calcification and the fossilization of Pharaoh's heart. 
Now, what's interesting in this part of the story, if you can look at it, the text, if you want to, what is Pharaoh's name in this story? You can look at your Bible, and it's not there. Here is the most powerful figure in that moment in history, and the Bible does not say its name. It's not because they didn't know his name. It's because they don't even want to dignify the pages of Holy Scripture by saying his name. And so the great contrast is that the king of Egypt goes unnamed, and the names that we're about to see are the first names in the book of Exodus, and it's not the Pharaoh, it's not Moses, it's two poor women. Let's continue in the story. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Pua, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt told them to do, and they let the boys live. And so the king of Egypt tries to conscript these two women into a systematic plan of trying to control the population. The king goes unnamed, and yet we hear the names of these two women as Shifra and Pua. Shifra meaning splendid, and Pua meaning to shine. Even in the midst of a really dark time where there's attempted murder, in systematic genocide, there is something that is about to be splendid and to shine. Now, in order to understand this story, I need to give you a little bit of context on these two women. Women at the time were considered to be not just second-class citizens, but were considered to be property. In addition to that, they were uneducated, and they didn't have access to education. And in addition to that, these two, we are told, are midwives. Midwives were typically women who were barren themselves. And so they were kind of the lowest on the caste system. Um, and so these two women are actually kind of the lowest of the low. Imagine being forced to work in your vocation in the very thing that was maybe the thing that you wished you could change about you more than anything else. And that's what these women are engaged in. And yet their bitterness does not lend itself towards unfaithfulness. And the Bible tells us why. It says that they feared God more than they feared Pharaoh. I love how one author puts it, Aaron McManus, he says it this way. He says, if you fear God, you fear nothing else. If you do not fear God, you fear everything else. One of the greatest problems that we have today is that as our awe and our reverence and our respect for God has gone down in our own lives, in our society, our fears are increasing. Have you noticed that anxiety is at an all-time high? What's happening is, is that as we lose our sense of the Almighty and the transcendent, all of the other things of fears are creeping up. If you fear God, you fear nothing else. If you do not fear God, you fear everything else. And because Shifra and Pua feared God, loved God, adored God, worshipped God, that even though they were being intimidated by the king of Egypt, they did not do what he was asking them to do. They may have not been educated, but they knew that God was on the side of life and they would not engage in his plan. Pharaoh gets a little upset by this and decides to summon them. 
Here's what it says. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and he asked them, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? And the midwives answered Pharaoh, the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So imagine this for a moment. All of the architecture, all of, I mean, people still pay a lot of money to go to Egypt to see the amazing architecture. Uh, Pharaoh was considered not just to be a king, but a, a god king, a, a sun god. And uh, in that point in time in history, all of that architecture was meant to be a temple to their own greatness. It was meant to intimidate. It was intimidate. It was meant to instill fear in the people of the power and the awe as people. So he summons them to his throne chamber. And what do the Hebrew midwives do? They don't cower. They insult all of the Egyptian women. They're like, you know what? Our women are not like your women. They're not wimpy. It's a miracle that these two women were not beheaded on the spot for not only the way that they didn't do what the Pharaoh asked them to do, the king asked them to do, also in addition to that, for the fact, the way that they spoke back to him, that they sassed the king. And in doing so, they have demonstrated one of the things that I don't want you to miss. Having a soft heart does not mean that you are weak. It, has great, it takes great courage to have a soft heart. And because of their faithfulness, look at what God does. So God was kind to the midwives and the people increased and became even more numerous. In the Hebrew, the technical word is they became stronger. So they multiplied and they became stronger. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. So God opens up their womb and they begin to have families of their own. And things even though you can do the right thing, even though you might be faithful, that doesn't mean that you get to control the circumstance. Because look at what happens next. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. Pharaoh, the king, cannot enlist them, co-opt them into his plan of genocide. But he will enlist his own people in the effort. Imagine this. Imagine if Shifra and Pua had not been faithful. There would have been no Moses. There would have been no dramatic Red Sea miracle. There would have been no Mount Sinai and Ten Commandments, no Ark of the Covenant, no journey into the land of the promise, the journey back to home. Do you think that they had any idea what was at stake by their soft-hearted faithfulness? I don't think that they did. I don't think they knew exactly what was at stake for them. But you know what they did know? They knew enough. They knew enough to fear God, to honor Him, and to obey Him. 
even in the darkest of circumstances. This is an image on the screen of a woman on the right by the name of Immaculee Ilibagiza. This is a picture of when she was 17 years old, right before she went off to college. Then she went to college, and then she returned to her native land of Rwanda, and she got to Rwanda in 1994. She came from a devout Tutsi family, and there was a great deal of conflict in Rwanda over the Tutsi and the Hutu families. And the different tribes considered them to be two different forms of ethnicities. And what happened was in 1994, there was a political regime change with the killing of a president that, that kind of created instability in the area and started to lead to the systematic murdering of the Tutsis by the Hutus. It is estimated that in that one year alone, that nearly one million Tutsis were killed in the country of Rwanda alone. And this was not just a statistic for Immaculee Ilibagiza. She was at home when the soldiers came. She barely escaped herself. Her own family was killed. She was able to escape to a neighboring pastor's home. And she hid in that home in a secret little bathroom that the pastor had. This is a picture of her in the bathroom. She hid in that bathroom with six other women. The seven of them hid in that room, not for a couple of hours, not for a couple of days, but for 91 days, they didn't leave this bathroom. This bathroom is four feet by three feet. It is 12 square feet in total with seven women in it. How would you respond to that? Here is what Immaculate wrote in her haunting memoir, Left to Tell. I found a place in the bathroom to call my own, a small corner of my heart. I retreated there as soon as I awoke and stayed there until I slept. It was my sacred garden where I spoke with God, meditated on his words, and nurtured my spiritual self. When I meditated, I touched the source of my faith and strengthened the core of my soul. While horror swirled around me, I found refuge in a world that became more welcoming and wonderful with each visit. Even as my body shriveled, my soul was nourished through the deepening relationship with God. That place was like a little slice of heaven where my heart spoke to his Holy Spirit and his spirit spoke to my heart. And he assured me that while I lived in his spirit, I'd never be abandoned, never be alone, and never be harmed. I sat stone still on that dirty floor for hours on end, contemplating the purity of his energy while the force of his love flowed through me like a sacred river, cleansing my soul, easing my mind. 91 days, soldiers specifically looking for her. She recalls moments where she could hear the soldiers outside the wall of the house calling Immaculate, we know you're here somewhere, because she was an educated and powerful woman. They were afraid. 
Eventually, when the conflict was over, she was able to be released and was able to come to the United States to start her life over. In a vision, in a dream, her family appeared to her, and in her dream, her brother said this, we'll be here, meaning heaven, waiting for you, dear sister. But now you must heal your heart. You must love. You must forgive those who have trespassed against us. So Immaculate makes her way painfully back to the ground zero of where this atrocity took place. She went to the jail of the man who had murdered hundreds, maybe thousands of people, slaughtered her own family. She asked the guard if she could see him. She walked in. He wouldn't even look at her. And she placed her hand on his head. And she said the soft words, I forgive you. The soldiers immediately roared to life, burst into the room, overhearing what was happening, ripped her away from him and said, Immaculate, what are you doing? We brought you in here to be able to spit upon him, to curse him, to slap him if you wanted to, but not to do that. You can't do that. And she said, I gave him forgiveness because forgiveness is all that I have to offer. Can you imagine that? Here's why I tell you that story. I tell you that story because if Immaculate can live with a softened heart and a hardening world, so can you. She's experienced maybe the worst that life can throw at you. And yet her heart was open to God, to his gospel, and to a life of grace and forgiveness. This is a picture of what Immaculate looks like today. I don't know what's happened to you, what little slights, or what deep pain and abuse you've endured. Here's what I am positive of. You have a choice to live more like Pharaoh, to become more ruthless and harsh, living in fear, or you can live like Shifra and Pua and you could be splendid and shine as God always intended you to. If Immaculate can live without bitterness and not allow her heart to get harder and harder and harder, then so can you and so can I. It's really possible. And as you forgive, that doesn't mean that it doesn't hurt. The hurt can sometimes stay for a while. But as you forgive, what you do is you forego your right to get back at them.
to punish them. So here's what I hope for you and for me, that this message will be your car windshield moment without having to run into it, that it will be that near miss that helps the truth of the reality to go from your head down into your heart, that you will develop an attachment to the truth, and that you will no longer want to live your life with a hardening heart like Pharaoh, but instead, you'll want to live your life more like Immaculate and Shifra and Pua, that we might develop soft hearts like the heart of God for a hardening world. Let's pray together. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you will open my heart and the hearts of the people in this room and that you will not allow the bitterness to take root You will not allow the hurt to calcify our souls. That our stubbornness would melt into a form of sensitivity. And that we will live out of the abundance of your grace and your forgiveness for us. We live in ruthless and harsh times, O oh God. And it is so easy to just slip into that pattern of the world. And so I pray that once again, you will birth a faithful people. Names not famous in history books, but famous in faithfulness to you. And so if anybody is here and on the precipice of what it means to go with the ways of Pharaoh or to listen to your call, may we hear you. May we follow you. And we pray all of these things with great anticipation in the strong name of Jesus the Christ and all of God's people said.